0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania all around. Australia. So today we're putting the M in STEM. That means we're joined by Sophie, who will be talking to us about some awesome decision science, I believe. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, uh, for me, who's based in Lutruwita, and acknowledge the traditional owners of where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman. I'm joined by our maths expert, co-host, Dr. Sophie Calabretto. And today we're going to be talking about using decision science to achieve better outcomes for the environment and society. And Sophie, can you tell us a little bit more about our guest and topic, please?
0: Yes. So we have Dr. Kate Helmstead from Queensland University of Technology. So Kate is a mathematician who uses decision science and optimization. We're going to talk about what those are in a second to achieve, as you said, neve better outcomes for the environment and biodiversity from conservation management. So essentially, What we're talking about is making better ecological decisions with mathematics. So it's maths, models, decision science for the environment – So, Kate, to begin with, can you just explain to us what ecological decision science actually is?
2: So ecological decision science is kind of focused on this idea that the environment in general is getting worse. Uh, In general, it's because of stuff that we're doing. Um, And there's a lot of kind of money and effort that gets poured into trying to stem the loss of biodiversity, so species and threatened ecosystems. Uh, But no matter how much money we have, we kind of never have enough money or resources to save everything. And we see that even where we have really high investments in trying to save ecosystems, we're still seeing extinctions around the world. And so trying to slow that or prevent that loss is really important. And it's a really hard decision problem because we have to make choices about what we can invest in, how we can spend those resources and kind of when we should do things, what should we save? And so ecological decision science is the idea of using maths to kind of try and not make those decisions, but support those decisions and build an evidence base to be able to make, to be able to make those decisions.
0: So just in general, so I I think a lot of people find this quite an interesting question. I get asked that a lot as a mathematician. So what actually motivated you to study maths? And then also, how did you end up in this particular field of mathematics rather than something else?
2: Um, I didn't originally start studying math straight out of school because I didn't know it was a job. I knew it was things that a thing that people like. And I knew that I was one of those people that liked it. Um, But it felt almost a little bit indulgent to go to uni um, and do something that I wasn't sure could lead to a job. I was very, very wrong. (laughs) Um, there's a ton of jobs in maths, but I, you kind of don't realise that until you're already in it a little bit. So I, you know, um, messed around for a couple of years at uni doing various different things, trying a bunch of different um a bunch of different courses and and classes before I finally realized, like, I think I should just settle and, you know, admit maybe I won't get a job in maths. Maybe it's not leading to a valuable career, um, but I'm just going to kind of do what I love. Uh, And and then kind of once I started studying maths at university is when I realized, well, first of all, I didn't really understand what maths was, because once you start studying it at uni, uh, you start realizing it's, way more exciting even than you thought it was, that it's way more complex, that, that it's not one big ball of stuff. It's lots of different pieces and you can choose the pieces you want to do. Um, and then that, of course, once I started realizing that is when I realized like everyone wants a mathematician and that, and that there will never be enough mathematicians in the world. Um, and that, um, you know, it's actually, there's a ton of careers out there. Um, and so I studied uh, then finished out my maths degree at University of Queensland uh, kind of didn't want to leave and get a real job, kind of wanted to stay indulgently studying the thing that I love. Uh, and so I stayed in in research and continue kind of doing research studies, including my PhD uh, from there.
0: That sounds like a very familiar story <laughs> actually I just didn't, I don't think I made a decision but I was like I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. let's just keep doing that thing. Yeah. so so were there any other kinds of maths that you were interested in as well? Was it really what got you into sort of the operations research decision science or is it just sort of something that happened organically like you were there and there were some opportunities and you liked them or
2: Yeah, it's a great question because the the math school that I did my undergraduate degree in is was quite theoretic focused, so a lot of pure maths. And I was really drawn to, and am still really drawn to, the types of problems where you can grab onto an example, like something tangible that I can imagine, or that someone, not me, can draw, or that um, that I can kind of talk to experts in other fields about really easily. And so that kind of leads you down a certain number of pathways in maths, might be statistics, it might be applied maths or computational modelling. So I kind of focused on this this applied maths field and then just met this researcher um, who was doing really cool science and, and was using maths to do something useful. And he was focused on using operations research for the environment. And I just kind of got hooked and and stayed in that and found my little niche. Yeah.
0: Love it. So getting back to decision science, can you just tell us sort of what are the, what are the kinds of problems and issues in sort of ecosystem management that you can tackle using maths and decision science? Because I I've heard you speak before and I want to talk about wallabies in, in a little bit, but what are some of the other, it sounds like you can really tackle lots of things using decision science.
2: Yeah. So a lot of it is about kind of when, should you take action? Um, where should you take action and what action should it be? So in kind of the ecological sphere or the biodiversity conservation sphere, there's a certain number of things that people think about doing. And those are things like building new protected areas, um, or, um, um, killing or dealing with invasive species in different areas, um, or doing restoration. So if an ecosystem is already quite declined, maybe people want to go in and, and kind of build that ecosystem back up by doing things like planting new trees or moving corals maybe into an area. Um, and all of those things are kind of expensive and they take a lot of planning. And so um, it's really thinking about those pretty broad scale um pretty complex decisions, all with this aim of saving either a threatened species or a a kind of threatened ecosystem.
1: Thank you, Kate. That gives a really good overview to decision science. I can't wait to delve further into it throughout the episode and maybe even talk about uh, the future directions of this field towards the end of the show.
0: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about decision science. My name is Sophie Calabretto and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Kate Helmstead from QUT. So now I want to focus on some particular work that you've done Kate and I'm really I'm going in for fuzzy and cute at this stage and then we you know we can I'm one of those people I love an adorable animal but this this falls into a category that I've heard you describe as top-down control of an environmental system. So I if you haven't worked it out already, I'm alluding to bridled nail tail wallabies. Have I got that name correct? Yes. Yep. And sort of just what you sort of suggested before about this idea of using decision science to reintroduce a threatened species into a, a historical range. So can you sort of tell us what a top-down control problem is and how it might differ from different kinds of problems in decision science? What makes it top-down?
2: In decision science, we're often thinking about like different people who are trying to make decisions, and sometimes we're thinking about something like a government or a management organization looking at their whole system or their whole environment or the whole domain over which they can kind of control, um, and they can look at that whole thing and make decisions and flick things on and off or put things in certain places or allocate things to specific regions, and so that's what we think of as being top down control because it's kind of we imagine that there's some benevolent dictator at the top who's looking at the system and saying, I know what's best for this system and what's best for everyone. And so I can allocate our limited time and money um, to to achieving things in that system. And often when we're thinking about ecosystems, that's a totally valid way to think about it. Because if we think about bridal nail towel wallabies, it really is kind of a governmental responsibility um, to think about limiting species loss and think think about limiting threatened species. And often we're thinking about governments or really big um, NGOs, like something like the Nature Conservancy, who can come and purchase big swaths of land um, and think about restoring them and putting species back there. And so bridal nail wallabies are an example of a critically threatened species in Queensland, where there's only a couple of populations of them left. And one of the things we want to do for critically threatened species is to increase the number of, um, number of populations of them in, in the wild. And so, one approach that we can, that, that kind of governments can think about doing is purchasing a new area is restoring that area. Maybe it's building a new national park. Um, maybe it's regenerating the forest there so that then the habitat becomes more suitable or suitable again for one of your cute, fluffy species that we really care about, like Bridal right wallabies. Of course, once you're putting the bridal nautile wallabies in, you'd sneak in a few of the other less um, less cute, <laughs> less fluffy species as well. So you're really hitting a, a bunch of different um, kind of objectives and goals in your system. The flip side from top-down control is the idea of bottom-up control, which is really thinking about the fact that a lot of conservation happens on um, private land. So a lot of people own land that is or could be really important for species and ecosystems. And asking a question of how do we, how do we take our limited funds and limited resources for conservation and really um, kind of inspire or incentivize people to be doing things on their own land um, or in their own homes or on their own farms that are, are, are better choices for, um, for threatened species and, and biodiversity.
0: With the Wallaby study, was there a specific objective you had or were there many of them? And then I guess what I want to go into after that is how does someone like you even approach this kind of problem? How do you pose the question? How do you solve it mathematically?
2: So, in environmental decision science problems, oftentimes we are, we do have multiple objectives. Maybe it's multiple different species. Maybe it's both species and something like agriculture or um, other you know tourism or think other things we get out of the environment. Um, in this in this wallaby problem, we were really specifically focused on looking at, at at what can be done for wallabies or really any critically threatened species because a really important thing. Um, is to take the most threatened or the nearest to extinction species and really hone and focus management for those. So in this problem, yeah, we were focused on um, on kind of bridal nail tail wallabies as an example species for one that you really care about and really want to protect.
0: And was there anything in the bridal nail tail wallaby study mm-hmm. that was surprising? Are there things that, you know, you're, you know, you're you're solving a specific you're looking to solve a specific problem or you're looking for specific information. Is there anything that was, that was was weird that happened? That's a strange question. But I always find that sometimes when I was working in maths problems, you go, oh, that result is a little bit strange. Or are they just like, no, nah, it's just what I thought? <laughs> so one thing that was really interesting that came out of this study is Often
2: when people are thinking about kind of building these new populations of threatened species in the wild, um, people are very focused maybe on the actual um, environmental dynamics, so how the how the population works and how that species is going. What we found that was really interesting in this particular study is that thinking about the costs of doing things and the costs of kind of releasing the um, – the individuals into the wild, or the costs of kind of building that new um, patch of habitat becomes really important. And not just that the costs exist, but thinking about what kinds of costs you might be paying. So we tend to think of costs as being financial costs, so pouring money into it into a um, into a system. But um, we also found that there's it's important to think about what is the demographic cost. So what's the cost of the species? Uh, um of of doing these these types of um these types of really long-term management strategies there's a there's a kind of ethical problem in biodiversity conservation particularly centered around cats feral cats in mm-hmm. australia where feral cats kill a lot of in of native species feral cats are bad um, it, but people really love cats like i don't know if you've ever been on the internet but people <laughs> love cats <laughs>
1: They feel pretty strongly about it, hey. They
2: do, don't they? Very strongly. And so we kind of see this um, kind of tension between this love of fluffy, cute species that are native in the system, but one of the ways that we need to control, one of the things we need to do so that we keep those those nice species around like the wallabies um, is deal with cats. And dealing with cats is often killing the cats, killing these feral cats. And so there's a lot of kind of... I mean, I hesitate to call it ethical concerns because I, I, I think of ethics as being more centered around around people than around individual cats. But certainly, um, there are concerns that people have um, about, about um, dealing with these with these threat with these invasive species. From my perspective, and using um, decision science, it allows us to kind of say quantitatively well, if you have a cat, you have this many fewer wallabies (laughs) or this many fewer bilbies or this many fewer um, seabirds in in sub-Antarctic islands or this many fewer, um, you know, quokkas on islands offshore of of Western Australia. And so maths can kind of help us come in and say, okay, it's not, we can quantify things to help us make those types of trade-off decisions.
0: So yeah, it's no longer about feelings, it's about this is what the data says if you have a cat.
2: Exactly, and maybe it's or still, other things. Maybe it still is about feelings, but but it's not it's not just a feeling about a cat. It's a feeling where you can say this many cats and this many wallabies and that allows yeah. people to kind of temper their feelings or or it gives people a lens through which to look at those feelings and make these decisions. Yeah,
1: thanks Kate. It, it sounds like such a diverse project or space that you work in I hope our listeners are enjoying the show and stay with us for part three as we look to the future of Kate's role and work
0: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're talking about decision science and conservation. My name is Sophie Calabretto and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Kate Helmstead from QUT. Okay, so we've talked about our top-down control and fluffy animals and as you said, this is really a best case scenario. So we are the benevolent dictator and we're doing what we can um, to fix or, you know, look at the problem, fix the problem in the way that we want to. Obviously, you've also alluded to the fact that, you know, sometimes we've got a lot of critical species and ecosystems that exist on private land. So does that add an extra level of complexity when you're dealing with these problems? How do you go about tackling it when you can't be that benevolent dictator and dictate your way to an optimal solution?
2: It adds a ton of complexity. Suddenly, I would say any problem, if you're going to throw people in the mix mix suddenly and needing people to do things, then suddenly you need to be thinking about people's own personal objectives and you need to be thinking about people's own personal constraints, like what if someone, you, you know, just had something terrible happen in their life? Are they necessarily making the same decisions as they would in a normal system? And do we need to model all of that? And do we need to think about all of that when we're thinking about our optimal um, decisions? And so really um, this bottom-up control kind of approach to thinking about, um, about these biodiversity conservation problems is us kind of saying, Does it change? Does it change what we might want to do? And are there different strategies? Does some other um, policy or does some other plan become more optimal? Do we get more bang for our buck if we do something differently um, when we consider people in the system?
0: I want to talk very briefly about disconnected control. So we've done top-down, we've done bottom-up, but then you talked about this thing called disconnected control where you have no direct control at all. What does that mean, Kate? And is this a huge problem for us?
2: So the idea of disconnected control (laughs) is that we often do have kind of this benevolent dictator making decisions about how to to allocate money. But often all that money can do is incentivize someone to do something at a lower level. And so if we're thinking about using decision science to come in and model some mathematical decision-making problem... That really becomes two separate issues. We need to be thinking about what are the people in the system, anyone who would actually go and take actions on the ground. That might be a landholder who has some um, habitat on their private farm. It might be a group, um, an environmental group, who does local environmental things like um, river restoration. And so those people and those groups have this their own optimization procedure going on in their heads that we can try and model, but we can't control that, right? Like we can't really change people's internal decision-making processes. What we can do is make really broad scale choices in, often. So we can think of this maybe at the highest level as being like a federal government allocating funds to states. So a federal government government might say that they have a certain amount of money to spend um, to allocate on biodiversity conservation. They look at things that might happen in different states, but really what they're doing is giving this packet of money to someone else and saying, okay, now you make these decisions. And so that can be really scary and hard for that benevolent dictator at the top, right? The person at the very top who's holding those purse strings and needing to just give away these kind of coarse and large sums of, of money or resources. Um, and so really this idea of disconnected control is kind of saying you can make good choices at that higher level, but you need to really be thinking about what those objectives in those, of those lower level or those on the ground decision makers are, are thinking about the, the the national body or the federal government can um, can make predictions and can can kind of try and embed an idea of that state government decision making and use that as a prediction for how the money that they allocate there might be spent and let's say that they predict that if they give a whole bucket of money to a particular state, that state actually doesn't maybe care about um, the same species that the federal government cares about or doesn't have the same preferences or objectives as them. And so potentially when you model this, it might end up that the money then from the federal government's perspective maybe isn't well spent there. And so it's this idea of layers of decision making, so layers of, of thinking not just about the actions that that decision maker can make, that what they can do with their money, but thinking what happens then, what, what really happens to achieve anything on the ground for conservation? It's not it's not it's not the person with the purse strings doing things. It's them incentivizing someone who may then be incentivizing someone who may then be incentivizing someone in the future even. And so thinking about all of those layers. Of the, deci- of the problem and kind of using math to build each one of those levels of decisions to kind of acknowledge that there's a lot of uncertainty in each one of those layers and what that might mean for making decisions at higher levels.
0: So is decision science paving a way to a brighter future or are we just becoming aware of great solutions we potentially can't use for a variety of reasons?
2: <laughs> so it's a really good question, right? So working in an academic field where we look at advising optimal decisions, you know, kind of pretty rarely am I writing an academic paper or doing an academic project to necessarily say, look, this is what you should do for this species. What we're trying to do is build a kind of base or a a big, group of knowledge that says, be careful about these things, like think it through. And there are really accessible tools that you can use to help you think them through. And so it's a really important part of being an academic in this space to not only be kind of designing the mathematics of these problems, but also making them really accessible and being being able to tell people things like, well, here's a general rule you might think about for managing these types of ecosystems. Or, hey, like, have you considered costs? Like, (laughs) costs are really important. And so sometimes maybe the best we can do is is send that message. Sometimes it's this amazing situation where we work with the people who are actually making the decisions and they actually do want to take our solutions. But both of those things are really important when we think about how complex managing the entire environment is for the rest of time. So I think it's really it's really important work for us to be communicating to decision makers i think it is getting through there are a lot of instances of a lot of collaboration between governments and people working in this space um we get a lot of collaborations with government and non-government organizations um you know it's a youngish field applying these types of mathematical problems to to conservation and um ecological management problems but I think honestly I think it is getting credit and I think that it is getting used maybe not every time but as a bulk of, of an approach
0: great so before we wrap up tell us about this new work because I don't know anything about this and I'm a little bit excited to hear about it so if you want to give yourself a quick plug tell us what the future looks like So uh,
2: I'm looking with new work, um, looking at conservation of Antarctica. So in Antarctic ecosystems, uh, obviously, the environment is changing very quickly in Antarctica. But there's a lot of um, things we want to preserve there, of course. Uh, There's the penguins, which Sophie, you'll like because they're cute.
0: (laughs) But then
2: then there's also a lot of You know, um, insects that people really care about. There's a lot of moss that people really care about. There's a lot of things that are really unique down in Antarctica. And so we want to be able to secure and preserve things there. It's an interesting place for me to be applying my types of mathematics and decision making problems because there's a lot of constraints in Antarctica it is very expensive to get there. You go for a long time, but if the weather is wrong, you can't do what you thought you were going to be able to do. Um, you can only go certain times of year. Uh, you can only travel in certain places in certain types of weather. And so it's this really unpredictable system that we really, really want to conserve. And so, um, I'm, Kind of starting this new this new work at the moment to take a lot of what we already know about how to make these types of conservation decisions somewhere a little bit easier, like Australia, um, and and thinking about what it means to be making these decisions somewhere as complex and interesting as
0: Antarctica. Great, so we will wait. And we will um, maybe revisit something that you've done later on. But cool. Thank you so much. So if you enjoyed the show, please do let us know
1: by um, liking and subscribing wherever you get your podcast. because we want to share the good work of science, technology, engineering and maths as far as we can. For now, thank you and goodbye from myself, Neve Chapman, my co-host, Sophie Calabretto and our expert guest, Kate Helmstead. Until next time. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.